Welcome to the Hawkeye Psychic Podcast. And you're very welcome back to the Hawkeye Psychic Podcast. Uh, this is our final episode specifically around the Australian Open, first Grand Slam of the year. I'm joined back again by uh, Michael Martin uh, to kind of review all that went on um, uh, during the week and the finals. So I suppose the main banner headlines, Ashley Barty delivered a Grand Slam triumph for Australia and herself, first since 1978, uh, beating Danielle Collins, 6-3-7-6, and then, of course, Rafa Nadal securing his 21st Grand Slam, uh, beating Daniel Medvedev in a five-hour-plus thriller. Mike, how are things? Hello, Mark. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good, thanks. Uh, tired after watching the two lads this morning, but I enjoyed it, obviously. Big time, big time. And we'll probably come to that in the next few minutes, but I suppose we can start kind of chronological order. And the, the women's singles uh, tournament, we've kind of flagged here, Michael, in the last two episodes, has been absolutely wide open. And I know when we spoke last weekend, we kind of reached the fourth round, quarterfinal stage. Ashley Bartley being absolutely relentless and uh, had dominant victories over Pergula. 6-2-6 love. Uh, Madison Keys' resurgence was ended quite uh, emphatically by Bartley as well. 6-1-6-3. While we had Danielle Collins, uh, the Floridian, um, we haven't really talked about her too much in our last two podcasts, but... Her fourth round um, uh, round fixture against Merton's superb game, 4-6, 6-4-6-4. And then she accounted for Corne and Zvitek. Um So, Mike, any kind of results there standing out for yourself uh, between Ashley Barkley and also Danielle Collins? Yeah, Mark. So, look, we we did talk about the women's draw, obviously, as much as the men's in the, in the last two, two podcasts. But... Like if you were looking to make money or if you were trying to uh, to guess who's going to win, well, I suppose Ashley Barty ended up winning it, fair enough, the number one seed. But like after that, the rest of the draw was just, it became really hard to predict. A lot of like surprising results. But then again, the women's tennis at the moment is, is so open, maybe Barty aside, um, it, it, you can't be too surprised by results. Isn't it? They're all really good players all around the same level. So like your number two and number uh, four seeds were knocked out kind of in the last 16, the the quarterfinals. And yeah, it, it nearly just depends who hits form. Is it that word momentum? Like Danielle Collins being the perfect example. She just seemed to hit form for the two weeks, uh, carried through the momentum and actually got through like Swiatek in the semifinal. She she came through that quite, quite easily, really, like 6-4, 6-1, which would have been unexpected. But for anyone who saw Danielle Collins, she's like really aggressive players in the kind of uh, woman who when she's playing well can beat anybody as she as she showed and yeah just she she seemed to be on form and, and made it true to her first Grand Slam final yeah absolutely um yeah I suppose for me anyway I think the main focus for our podcast has been really Ashley Barty and to be perfectly fair um I thought the the keys performance I thought it was not short but outstanding didn't give didn't give Keys a chance or an opportunity, really winning the opening set 6-1, following the same vein 6-3. Her all-round game was just far superior. But it's good to see Keys, I think, back um, on the big stage. Hopefully bigger and better days ahead for the American. But uh, I suppose we can lead into the actual final itself, early Saturday morning, uh, Irish time. Uh, what were your overall thoughts here, Michael, on this uh, final? 
Yeah, I, I, I watched it all, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, just look at Barty. She's very impressive. Like, we were talking last week and we were saying she was into the quarterfinal at that stage. She was doing all the right things on the court. She was flying through her matches. She was saying all the right things off the court, you know, nice and relaxed. But there's no doubt she was under pressure. I mean, she became the first Australian um, winner of the Australian Open for 44 years. So, like... You can imagine the media hype and, uh, you know, the pressure that comes with that in, in Australia. But she definitely seemed to take it in her stride. I mean, she she was head and shoulders above everyone. Like at the end of the tournament, she dropped 30 games in total. So like to put that in perspective, she played seven matches and she lost 30 games. So you're saying like four four games per match. So that means she wins each match 6-2, six, 6-2. Two, six, two. Like it's hard to remember as kind of straightforward a, a Grand Slam win as that. It, it it seems it almost seemed too easy. But like full credit to her. I mean, she she's an interesting player in that like she doesn't hit the ball as hard as other uh, women playing the game. You know, Danielle Collins being the perfect example. She hits it hard off her forehand, the backhand. Barty really mixes it up. And basically, I think uh, a lot of the other women they just find it really hard to deal with her slice with her variety. And um, yeah, they'll have um, they'll have to improve, as in they'll have to practice, for want of a better word, because Barty's always going to do that. She's going to mix it up, and they can't just you know expect her to hit the ball back to them and kind of have a shootout. Is it? She's she's just an intelligent player and kind of something different. And uh, you know, she was uh, really comfortable uh, ultimately, and great for the Australian Australian public and Australian tennis. Absolutely, and I think before the match, there's images of uh, uh, Barty with her coaching staff warming up, and again with the Ashes series. So, in fact, the key won by the Australian men. Uh, she was having a bit of a ball and uh, batting with a cricket bat. It was just seemed all very um, composed, very relaxed, very chilled. And she kind of started the match, I thought, Mike, in pretty emphatic fashion. Um, very solid overall. I mean, overall, she had ten aces. 82% first serve points won um 30 winners uh granted offset that with 22 and four stars but again as you say michael her variety of play really did flummox collins particularly at the start it was a bit of a nervy start i think from danielle collins as well michael wouldn't would you agree it was yeah but like um well i don't know as in yeah but like that's what ash barty does she really isn't it she like she makes you miss essentially um like a lot of these women's matches they're nearly like uh, power competitions nearly you know as in they're hitting the ball so hard to be fair to them and often they end up playing against the player who's doing the same thing so they both end up hitting the ball as hard as they can forehands backhands and you know whoever wins wins whereas barty just doesn't allow you to do that like as in she makes you go off balance she makes you, you know, move left and right, forward and backwards. So I, I can just imagine she's just awkward to play against, and she's excellent anyway. But you know what I mean? She makes she makes you miss. That's that's what um probably differentiates her, is, and she gives you variety. And that was always a danger uh, for Collins, and she did quite well. Like as in, she, don't forget, she was five one up in the second set. But even when she was five one up, like you never well, I don't know. It's easy to be wise now, but you were never overly confident she'd win the set because like. She can always, she hit a purple patch, but then that can kind of go away as fast. And like Barty can just, um, she sticks in there like, and yeah, it was no massive surprise, even though she was 5-1 up. It was no surprise that Barty brought it back and, and ended up winning that set. She's just, she's just um, 
different to most other players. And as I said, I think it'll take time. The other women players will have to adjust to that now and think, okay, what do I need to improve to beat Barty? Because she's the number one now. She very much looks justified as the number one. So it's up to them to kind of improve and say, okay, I'm really good at my four and a back end. I can beat most players in the world just on that. But I now need to add something so that I can take on a Barty like who's going to make it awkward for me. Yeah, it's really spot on, Michael. And we can go back to that second set. I mean, ironically enough, with Barty, it was probably her mini crisis of the tournament, particularly the two breaks of serve. I think it stunned the home crowd temporarily as well when Danielle Collins, to her credit, uh, led 5 1 in that second set. And I mean, statistics wise for Collins, she was red hot during that second set. But again, as you said, but was maybe one or two, maybe unforced errors here, kind of let Barty back into it. And once uh, I thought Barty got the first break of serve back, the momentum had swung back again in the Australians' favour. And I think credit Collins, you know, kind of pulling it into the tie break. But I think momentum had definitely shifted uh, in that critical kind of game when it was 5-1. Yeah, that's it. And like Danielle Collins would play a game where there'd be, you know, a lot less margin for error in her game than, than Barty's. So, um, yeah, that, that word again, momentum, like once Barty got to 5-2, 5-3, all of a sudden she was probably favoured for the set, even though she was still 5-3 down, as in it was that kind of thing. And, but like, yeah, I don't want to, uh, I wouldn't be harsh on Collins at all, as in like a brilliant story for her, brilliant, brilliant tournament, as in for anybody watching it, they, it would have been well highlighted that she, she had uh, health issues like um, for a number of years and that she could they didn't really get to the bottom of uh, at the time so in, in her eyes it kind of cost her a few years um you know it should have been diagnosed a bit earlier and maybe dealt with earlier so a great story like she's she's um she's a serious competitor like as in she seemed to love playing against Barty and the crowd nearly you know she's she's a tough a tough nut from from looking at her so you know full credit to her as well she definitely she made a match of it to be fair she made much more of a match of it than other other people that Barty had played so look it, as I said it just came down to maybe Barty's she's just better that's that's basically it yeah I think it's the biggest compliment I think Mike you've given Danielle Collins that given how that first set had gone previous opponents that have faced Ashley Barty would have basically folded and this could have very easily been a 6-1-6-2 but in fairness to Danielle Collins, regrouped, hit her purple patch, and really, Ashley Barty really had to play some good quality, solid tennis to get back into it. And I mean, getting to six all, you, you, there was kind of an outside chance maybe before that tie break that Collins could maybe make it. But I mean, the first few points of that tie break was so emphatic uh, from Ashley Barty that only one winner, and you know, it does finish up seven two on the tie break. And Australia and Ashley Barty can rejoice on a grandstand triumph. Yeah, that's it. And and huge for Australian tennis. We touched on that last week. Um, and I think, actually, I hold my hands up and say, I forgot one player. I think I said uh, Leighton Hewitt would have been the last Australian winner of a Grand Slam. But there was a woman, uh, Samantha Stozer, uh, what year? She won, uh, was it the US Open? She won, I should have a year for you, but maybe 2014, something like that. But a, a woman I forgot, but still, like Ash Barty is, looks like she's kind of there to stay. You know, you're, you're look, we're saying that about the men, you have your big three, you have to keep going back to them, but Jack, Nadal, and Federer, 
and you're kind of looking for that in the women's who's going to be the the kind of face of the of the WTA for you know the coming two years three years Osaka will be there thereabouts we know she had her issues you know she's a big a big name a big star but like Ash Barty looks as if um yeah she'd be the one to beat for the rest of this year anyway and she's still very young like she seems very level-headed etc so you know she's definitely should be around for a good few years to come yeah I, I do agree with that uh, Mike I thought it was good to see some of the more experienced tour players really get their chance to shine thinking of the Cornet as well at magnificent tournament the likes of Key's great story in terms of last season how devastating that season was from form see her come back onto the big stage Danielle Collins um as we said repeatedly here this tournament was wide open there were so many shocks uh, Zabalenka, you know, we thought maybe last weekend could maybe hit a bit of a run, gets promptly knocked out next round. Sviatek as well, we thought maybe was the form person going into that bottom half of the draw, didn't materialise, with Daniel Collins being outstanding. And I think it was just fitting, I think, with Ash Barty, you know, just in terms of Australia, really, crit- it's been a superb summer of sport for Australia, thinking of the cricket here. The men's ashes was an emphatic series win for uh, against England. Again, it continues that momentum here as well. And I thought maybe the trophy presentation was very, very poignant in terms of Yvonne uh, Gullagon, uh, Cawley, uh, presenting the trophy to Ash Barty as well. I thought it was great symbolism there in terms of the trophy presentation. Um, you know, and I think it did fulfil quite the the story in terms of the women's singles game and. If we can get more and more competitive games like this, I think Barty is there to be shot at. French Open, next Grand Slam, obviously. Clay Courts. Um, but you may see Badoza and a few other uh, players that didn't really perform in this Grand Slam maybe come to the fore again. So I think it was an outstanding tournament, I think, from the women's single side. And uh, I think we have a very worthy winner in Ash Barty. Yeah, absolutely. It's, look, that's that's it really, I mean. It's it's kind of the the story everyone wanted. Again, definitely in Australia, it's what they wanted. Um, and yeah, no, as in full credit her to drop 30 games throughout the whole tournament. I mean, that's I didn't look up any records or anything like that, but that must be pretty close to being a record. I mean, that's you're you're thinking of your Serena Williams in her in her heyday, like she might have gone through a tournament as easily as that. But apart from Serena and Venus, maybe when she was at her the height of her powers. I don't know, has there been dominance like that? I mean, it's, it's it's incredible, 30 games. And as I said, that's four games she lost on average per match. That's that's super stuff. Yeah, I'm even thinking Mart- Martina Navratilova, even a Steffi Graf in her prime. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was awesome from start to finish. I mean, the first round really did set the tone, you know. Um, you know, an emphatic win there and never looked back. But I think, uh, as you say, Ash. Barty has the opportunity and her comments after it is like she's still refining her game. There's still areas she feels that she can improve upon. I think that's autumn signs for the rest of the chasing pack. So I think the rest of the chasing pack need to probably get their, uh, have their work cut out uh, to really compete here with Ash Barty, particularly when you see Wimbledon coming up and then also the US Open at the back end of the year. If Barty can remain injury free, I think she is the, the talus woman of uh, women's sport at the moment in tennis. So well done to Ashley. Um, then we can move on to the men's singles uh, final here, Mike. Uh, what an attritional battle. Five hours, 24 minutes. Uh, Rafa and Daniel literally produced 
in my eyes, it was an absolute thriller. What was your thoughts, uh, Michael? Yeah, look, it's it's fantastic. As in, I was uh, it was hard to even like you know you were talking. What was it? Five hours, fourteen minutes, something like that. But like even to sit down for that long to watch it, I mean, is hard. Not a mind to be out there playing for that long. But like I was only asking someone there this afternoon. I was talking to him. I was saying over Rafa's kind of knocking around for maybe the last 17 years you know he's 35 now he came on the scene very young when he was 18 so we'll say 17 years like can you think Mark put you on the spot here like is there a better competitor in sport over the last 17 years as and by competitor I mean like just gives it everything like you can just never count this guy out as in He's just, he's never beaten. Like, until you're shaking hands with him at the net, you haven't been beaten because he's just an absolute warrior. Like, Oh, that's a very good question. If I'm thinking Irish sports, I'm probably thinking of Kilkenny, Kilkenny Hurler, like a Brian Cody or Henry Shefflin or a TJ Reid or someone to that effect. But I think globally, I'm very hard-pressed. I'm struggling right now. Uh, maybe a Tom Brady, NFL quarterback. You know, yeah. uh, two-minute warning, that sort of thing. But I think for overall consistency, look, the, the dominance he's had, I think I think Rafa's a very good pick there, Mike, to be fair. Yeah, and again, I look, not putting you on the spot there. I was struggling myself. But all I'd say is, like, individual sport, as in, you know, the other people I think of, yeah, like, obviously, there's there's super uh, players in every sport, men, women. But, like, you're out there on your own, like, you you know, it's okay maybe in a team you can have a slightly off day and you know you still come up with your moment of magic and everyone thinks you were brilliant all match but like yeah I don't know I was just so impressed with him yeah. and I, I, I nailed my colours and I said like I'd be a Federer fan but like how can you not love Rafa as well as in he's just this guy he should have lost today like it's another one of those matches after the second set you're like that's it you know as in he should have arguably won the second set He's, he struggled from the first game nearly to hold serve like as in you know he's there pumping sweat after three three games and you're like geez will he last the pace but sure of course he did like you should you should never doubt him yeah no exactly uh, maybe the effect of the quarterfinal semi-final maybe had a little bit of an impact on Rafa if you think of uh Shepel Valov the Canadian really pushed him hard in five sets I know there was a little bit of controversy with Shapel uh, Valov's comments regarding the gamesmanship of Rafa. But again, Berrettini, four sets, it looked comfortable. But I suppose you're combining those sets as four sets, five sets. And then I think getting in with Medvedev as well, who's very fit, you know. And to be fair to Medvedev as well, lead up to his final, it wasn't all play saying for him either, like Augur, Alice Selmy from Canada, five sets, face two sets down. We're looking at Zarev, and I mentioned last week that with Medvedev, I was very hesitant on my pick on that, and it nearly came to fruition. And then to see pass as well, my God, that was kind of a spiteful game that I have seen in quite a long time in terms of the outbursts and then the coaching kind of accusations being leveled at the Sipas's father and stuff. And it kind of led again to this whole villain effect on Daniel Medvedev, you know, looking to be, you know, the 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 purveyor that will destroy the home support favourite. And I mean, for the first two sets, I thought he played outstandingly well. Really had Nadal on the back foot, you know, 23 aces throughout the match. But, you know, the second set, you know, he, or third set, he has the chance to literally take this game away. He's 2-3 up. You know, it's advantage. Medvedev looking at a break. I think that's a massive turning point of the game. Would you agree, Mike? Yeah, it is. Like, but, and I agree with you completely, as in, like, it looked as if, you know, he was going to beat him in three, possibly. But I just, you, 
there was a friend of mine actually messaged me during the match and more or less said, you know, after the second set, oh, Rafa's he's done pretty much. And again, it's not, it's not like you wouldn't want to be a genius again to 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 say this, but like I didn't message the person back because I was like, if you write Rafa off, like you, you'd have done it 20 times in the past or well, maybe not that many, but, you know, you'd write him off and after two sets of a match and you'd say, oh, he's done. But like you just can't as in he's... He just won't go away. Like I mean, he he just finds a way. Um, but I uh, so impressed with him and Medvedev, by the way. And like I mean, he could have um, you know, been feeling sorry for himself there going into the fifth set, and you know he he gave it everything as well. It was it was uh, ah, very entertaining. Like and they, as they'd say, they definitely left it all out there. Like and um, yeah, very very impressive. Yeah, indeed. So I think Medvedev as well. I think the third set really did kind of rattle him because then he had that little kind of exchange with the umpire regarding poor ball boys and ball girls in terms of how they were distributing the balls around the court, like obviously trying to get himself G'd up again. Um, he may have hit a bit of a flat spot, but as you say yourself, Medvedev certainly did leave it out there, particularly in that fifth set where there was vulnerable moments for him. He did fight back very gamely, but I thought there were some shot selections there from Medvedev as well, kind of gave a little bit of a... And let's be let's be brutally honest here. I think maybe probably ninety five percent of that crowd in the Ron Laver court was willing Rafa Nadal on, particularly from the third set on, to make a match of it. Medvedev was playing against a partisan crowd, and in fairness to him, you know he contributed massively to an incredible match. You know, five hours twenty four minutes, uh, and again an awful lot of the stats. You know, looking at them, I have gone Medvedev's way in terms of even winners, seventy six winners. To 64, I believe, for Nadal. You know, as I said, the aces count 23 to 3. You know, service points one to Medvedev as well. So, so Medvedev will probably be scratching his head a little bit in terms of how uh, he lost that. But credit to Nadal. Did he kind of uh, maybe a little bit pressure off Nadal a little bit in that third set? He seemed to go free shots an awful lot more, I thought, uh, Mike. And they did come off for him. Yeah, um, you, you said something there, Mark, that was quite uh, accurate. You you said about Medvedev's shot selection. That was in the third set, right? Wasn't that the period where he like he was going for drop shots kind of out of nowhere and kept going for drop shots? And like even watching it here on TV, you're kind of like, why is he doing that? Was it like he, you know, he hadn't been doing it up to that point. So like, you know, a drop shot, um, you know, throw it in every so often, obviously for variety and, you know, keep keep your opponent guessing. But he seemed to nearly be kind of stubborn about it and was like, oh, I'm going to keep going for this till I get it. And it almost um, invited Rafa into it, basically. And sure, no better man to, to take the opportunity. But look, again, that's that's easy to say. Is it fatigue? You know, is it uh, you're not you get tired? You don't think as clearly as you should. Even there was break points there that, that Medvedev had. And, um, you know, most people would know by now that Nadal is left handed. So Nadal would have been serving to the advantage court, as they call it. So. Uh, vast majority of the time, Nadal is going to serve out wide, so he'd serve to Medvedev's backhand, and Medvedev didn't kind of step to that side. Like I was surprised, and this happened three, four times in a row. And you're kind of thinking to yourself, take a gamble, as in move to to your left, because it's way more likely that's where the ball is going to be. Um, so just things like that, but like easy to be critical, obviously. Like as in these guys are fantastic, and you know he's he's a super player. But is it just fatigue and? Do you know what I think it is a lot of as well? It, it's yeah. it's the aura in Nadal, like as in Medvedev. Did you see that Nadal afterwards said that Medvedev asked him after the match, kind of jokingly, "Oh, when are you going to retire?" 
you know so like the, these guys you know Nadal has won so much he has that aura about him that are you already in your mind when he starts coming back do you start to panic a bit you go oh my god here here he goes again kind of thing it's it's just what he's built up over his career like you it's like us saying here he's never beaten you know you, you as a player playing against him as an opponent you must have that in the back of your mind oh god here he comes he won the third set you know as in he, he's gonna he's gonna keep coming after me like so it's um it's that kind of uh, what would I say that reputation he's built up and justifiably he built it up over his full career that he just doesn't go away and that gets into opponents heads I suppose I think you're spot on there maybe uh, Daniel Medvedev had did spot the finishing line a bit too early as well particularly when he was 2-3 up in that third set but yeah look at the body of work of Rafa you could say that for Novak you could say that with Roger as well they do have that aura about them, then, don't they? It's a, a bit more, it's like the dominant force, you know, of a particular sport. If you're the opponent, you feel you have to do more than you typically would do against another opponent. And I, yeah, and going back to your shot selection, I think with Daniel Medvedev, he did hit a bit of a flat spot, particularly in that uh, third set. And I hit a heart back about that 2-3 Um you know, game when it goes level to three all, he does hit the flat spot and he does call the trainer, you know, during the match as well. Maybe the legs feeling a bit tight and looking to maybe shorten the rallies a bit because the one thing Rafa is so good at is dogging out these results. The lengthy rallies, you know, particularly from the baseline, there's no one better to vary out the play. And I thought he's short angle forehand, particularly Mike, in the crucial periods of this, particularly from the third set on really did start to kind of we suddenly saw a few chinks in the armor particularly in Medvedev's backhand particularly let him down once or twice on the key the key points yeah and they did like yeah but it, it's it's this thing mark of like these are best of five set matches so apart from the grand slams um all the other tournaments would be best of three sets so it's just you have to sustain. So you're playing against the best players in the world. So now Medvedev is number two in the world. So he's obviously brilliant as well. But like it's Nadal, Federer and Djokovic. Like, do you believe that, you know, over in this case, five hours, like these guys, do you believe that you can beat them over five hours? They just kind of grind you down and they've done it all before. As I said, it, it's that kind of mental thing of, um oh like Rafa won't be beaten. He's he's done it all his career. So um yeah, that's that's why they've won so much because it's so hard to beat them over five sets because um they they've just yeah, they're too good anyway. And you can't sustain your level to, to finish them off essentially, as in whereas the best of three match could be over really quickly. If you know all these guys are top top class players. So if you can go out in a best of three set match and if you can play brilliantly for an hour or maybe an hour and 20 minutes, you've the match won. Whereas in Grand Slams, best of five set matches, you have to play brilliantly for three hours to win a match against, you know, a Nadal, a Djokovic or a Federer. And now all of a sudden, if they can just keep you out there, which Nadal did to Medvedev today, like you're going to hit a little slump and now they're back into it. And, you know, it's, it's just hard to finish them off because it's you have to get to three sets. Like I know you'd watch it there today and you think, God, Medvedev, he won the first set quite easily, it seemed. Uh, won the second set and as I said you'd, we'd all be thinking God Nadal's finished here he, he's in trouble but like you have to sustain that level again and that's that's what uh, the next generation of players like we're, we're back to it again the big three 
even though you know Federer is 40 now like let's be honest about it so it's kind of Djokovic and Nadal to being straight about it but um can you sustain that level long enough to beat them and they can't at the moment is is uh, is, is what happens most of the time yeah because yeah, I think you're bringing up a good point you know we kind of see with the young guns here particularly on the dial side of the draw particularly when it came to the quarterfinals semi-final stage we did see flashes of brilliance from the likes of Shapovalov, Berrettini as well from Italy as well, who will contend definitely in the grass and hard court season. But again, it was the key moments again where Nadal, he's now sees guile. You know, he makes you hit that one extra shot that you think you shouldn't need to execute, and your mind is probably on the next point. You know, he's so good in terms of, you know, that dogfight. But you know, his skills as well today. Um, in the key exchanges, I thought he was just absolutely superb. You know, the break points were clinically executed um, as well uh, from Nadal. But it does bring up a great point, <laughs> laboring on my point a little bit here, Michael. But it does kind of mention, we've talked about Alexander Zarev. We've talked now about uh, Daniel Medvedev. How do you feel in terms of Mike, even from a Daniel Medvedev's coaching team perspective? Is this going to be a bit of a challenge to get Daniel Medvedev's psyche or mentality back? Um, to really get over the finishing line in a major um, final going forward because, you know, he had this game under control for two sets and to lose in this manner, it would be devastating for most players. Yeah, well, like, you know, we have to give Medvedev credit. He's, he's won the US Open um, last year, so he has he has got over the line, but he won that one in three straight sets So against Djokovic. So, you know, it's different. As in this will obviously hurt him big time as in it's, it's one he he'll feel he should have won, and I like him. You know, he's a bit of a he's a bit of a pantomime villain, isn't he? He seems to kind of almost. Um, I know people might like you shouldn't see him giving out to the umpire, and particularly today at the ball boys and ball girls, like there's no need for that at all. But he's that seems to be his kind of way of motivating himself, if you like. Uh, so he's 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 a character anyway. He's he's something different in the game. But look, I think he's so close, like such fine margins. Isn't he? He's won one before. He was really, really close to winning one today. So I think he's a he's a potential winner again throughout the year. It's it's the rest of them below that that you'd be kind of like, we said this about Zverev. Until he actually goes and does it, you can't be, you know what I mean, as in there'll always be doubts. Same with Tsitsipas, like really talented, really good player, but you have to go and do it. And at some point along the way, if you want to win one of them, you're going to have to beat Nadal or Djokovic. If they're fit and healthy, and if they get into the tournament, in some cases, if they're allowed into the country, uh, you're going to have to be good enough to beat them. And you have to be able to beat them over five hours because they won't just give it to you like. Which is the proper way of, you know, match should be kind of played. And, you know, particularly with these guys, it will be interesting. I think the ramifications of this may be huge. I think you say, um, Mike, I'd be very interested to see how the Berrettinis, the Shapovalovs, Augur Ali Semenye as well, you know, definitely probably would feel that maybe a chance for him that was opportunity lost there a little bit, particularly in that quarterfinal when he was two sets up against Medvedev. Yeah, there is a little bit of, yeah, particularly Zarev, but there are underlying question marks over these guys, whether they can, you know, prolong their performance levels, particularly when you get to a semi final, final of a Grand Slam. And until they do that, um, you know, Nadal probably will kind of recuperate now and kind of enter into the 
enter into the hard courts in the KC season. Obviously, France, he would be hotly favoured, I would say, Mike, uh, to secure another Grand Slam on top of he's 21 already. So, you know, it doesn't get any easier for those guys uh, uh, looking at Rafa uh, there today. Yeah, and uh, we all can imagine, uh, I don't know, would he have sat down and watched the match, but um, I know Djokovic and, and Federer put out tweets or messages afterwards congratulating Adele, so you'd say, you'd imagine they did watch it, but like, this is, <laughs> we're back to, we're coming full circle here, Mark, we spent the first podcast or a, a portion of it talking about Novak and, you know, not getting into the country, uh, unvaccinated, etc., but like this couldn't have gone any worse for him as in the worst possible outcome for him was Nadal to win it. So he yeah. now moves on to 21 Grand Slams and has the clay court season. Again, for people who don't know it, Nadal has won the French Open 13 times. Um, you know, he's he's only ever been beaten three times at Roland Garros in the last 17 years. Uh, um, so like he will be favoured for the French Open, um, you know, which could put him two ahead of Djokovic, two Grand Slams ahead of him. But I said Nadal has been beaten three times at the French Open. Twice, two of those times were by Djokovic. So Djokovic is the only uh, current player um, to have beaten Nadal at Roland Garros. So <laughs> we'll be back to this maybe if we do another podcast in a few months, Mark. At the moment, as it stands, you can't get into France uh, unless you're vaccinated. Uh, so <laughs> it could be history repeating itself in uh, another few months as in does this, uh, does Djokovic now feel, oh God, if I don't play the French Open, now Nadal will be on number, the likelihood is he'll be on number uh, 22 and I'll still be on number 20. Does that come into his reckoning? Like you said it there, Nadal now can basically go and put his feet up for a couple of months, essentially, if he wants, and just time his run for the French Open where he's he's at home, like as in he's he must be so confident every time he goes there and you know, he's he'll be even more confident after this. I mean, this was a massive win for him. Uh, according to himself, it was unexpected. As in he, I didn't realise, or I don't think many people did, he was physically not in a good way, he was saying a month and a half ago at all. So it was, um, yeah, as in a real bonus win for him is, is is what you think. And like, yeah, he'll 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 take huge confidence now for the French Open. And, you know, who will stop him at the moment? You'd say only Djokovic can stop him. So... We'll see how that will play out. Exactly. I think you raised an awful lot of massively good points there, Mike. In terms of uh, Djokovic looking at home back in Belgrade, I think, you know, unmitigated disaster in terms of who's actually won the Grand Slam. Yeah, I think the French Open becomes into sharp focus now in terms of Novak. Again, BBC News again did an undercover um, investigation in terms of the lead up to Novak and this COVID exemption in Australia. Still identifying key questions in terms of that, in terms of the COVID test in Serbia uh, based on the dates. So I think that story is going to run and run and run for uh, Novak, unfortunately. And yeah, it's for Rafa Nadal. I think he's the looks the fresher guy of the two uh, today, uh, which you have to compliment Rafa Nadal's backroom team to get Rafa to the position where he was today in the fifth set five hours 20 minutes getting into that kind of key kind of area you know game winning um you know moments here where he does literally you know really drive on to get over the line i mean his service game is nothing short of sensational to close it out and i mean that's all down to the backroom staff the fitness and conditioning and as you say yourself he was not in good shape in december you know there's uh pictures floating there on the social media networks in terms of uh 
Rafa kind of looking pretty forlorn there, you know, outside the hospital. And, you know, it's an amazing transformation. So, I mean, all credit to Rafa. Congratulations. And, uh, yeah, it, it bodes well for an exciting season. I think, you know, Novak will have to respond. And hopefully Roger comes back, you know, in good shape. And, again, we mentioned the front three there. And it sounds as if the, these leading three tennis greats are going to really dictate again in terms of grand slams and whoever on below the pecking order does beat them god their you know their opportunities for a grand slam really have diminished given that you've no Vac out yet roger out rafa probably not at 100 percent, but still gets the job done it must be pretty dispiriting for anyone below that pecking order but all in all i think it was a satisfactory end to the tournament i would say for the australian open to organizers given all the novak Djokovic um chaos beforehand you know for a five hour 24 minutes five hour 24 minutes and um, final it really did provide a spectacular end to the tournament mike any kind of other players kind of stand out for you uh, in the men's side of the draw that you know we've kind of been talking about the the top three but anyone that you have maybe a little bit more high hopes on um after their performance in australia yeah it, two canadians mark is in and again like these are guys who made the quarterfinals so denis shapovalov uh who lost to nadal in five sets um you know um definitely up and coming these are guys they're the next kind of couple of years younger they're in their early 20s whereas your zverevs and your sitsipis is now are you know mid-20s which is still incredibly young obviously but like you're kind of thinking, are these are these the guys who will eventually break through? You know, are you are you looking at your 21 year olds now who will actually push on and have the have the ability, have the the I don't want to say the bottle, but I don't know, is that the word? You know, will they actually finally take over from your Nadal's and your Djokovic's? Like, and you know, have they they don't have that fear maybe, or because that's what it nearly seems like. Is and do these players actually believe that? It's like any sport. There's been they've been so dominant. Do you actually believe when it comes to the crunch that you could beat these guys? Um. So yeah, Shapovalov looks as if he's got the, what would you say, the character for it. As in, even look right or wrong, he had an argument with Nadal. As in, he called it out that, in his opinion, Nadal, and the the top players get kind of preferential treatment, which let's be honest, they probably do. Again, it's it's like any sport. Is in the top teams generally get the decisions from the referees or you know they get the they get the the little small calls in their favor that's that's what happens whether that's human nature or not i don't know but uh again nadal i'm sure would say he doesn't but he's earned that like over his career as in you know he didn't get them at the start so if you if you start dominating you know you you nearly earn these little small decisions that argument by the way with shapovalov and nadal was to do with time and Again, people might be aware there's a shot clock kind of in tennis now that between points, it's meant to be 25 seconds. But it's it's one of those ones like it's a rule, but it's not always enforced. Um, so and that would be one criticism. If there is one criticism of Adele would be that he he is um, not very what's the word I'm looking for. He doesn't always stick to that time. And like the kind of sportsmanship side of it in tennis would be that you're meant to play at the pace of the person who's serving. So, like, if the person is ready to serve, you shouldn't be making them wait the whole time to serve. But anyway, that's that's what that argument was about. So, whatever way you look at the argument, at least in some ways, should Pavlov had the the guts or the battle to actually stand up to Nadal and kind of call him out on it. So maybe that shows a bit of character in him that you know will drive him on and, and get him to the top the top level. And the other guy who I thought was very good is, as you said, Felix Ogre Elisime. 
Um, only 21 should have or could have beaten Medvedev. Would have been a breakthrough win for him. Who, funnily enough, by the way, uh, Tony Nadal is is Rafa's uncle, and he coached Rafa for years and years until you know since he was a kid until he was 30 years of age, and they kind of they didn't have any falling out or anything. I suppose they just uh, parted ways amicably. But he started uh, helping to coach Augur Eliseme. So look, if he can do as much with him as he did with Rafa, he uh, he's a good chance of being a big name in the future. And one last one to give you actually, and a guy I didn't know too much of, an 18-year-old who I saw twice play in the tournament who I thought was very impressive. Um, and he was the number 31 seed, but he's only 18 years of age. But Carlos Alcaraz Garcia, or Garcia possibly in Spanish, to, if I pronounced that right, but another Spaniard. But yeah, Thought he really looked, he looked the business as in for an 18 year old. Um, thought he was very impressive. And you, you'd you be thinking, what what could he do in the next three years? Maybe, you know, he'll, he'll have to build it up in terms of fitness and strength. But I thought um, for an 18 year old, he was very impressive. And if he can continue to improve, uh, maybe we could have another Spaniard taking over from Rafa. Very possibly. I think they're great picks there, Michael. And Mike, to be honest, uh... Yeah, Shapovalov. I mean, if there's not motivation for the rest of the year, given how that the Dal match went, I think you know the guy can forget about it. Really, I think he should have an extra drive, an extra gear to kind of really succeed this year and even into next year. Geez, the Canadian um, national tennis team look as if they're in superb shape. I mean, granted, they're kind of you know team event win at the start of the year. I mean, you have two guys like that on the men's side really kind of pulling trees i mean that they they're going to be dangerous in terms of when the kind of federation cups um um happen uh but yeah i'd agree with you there anyway uh, um you know for me i think shapovalov is probably the key guy there to maybe have a watch out for and yeah hopefully uh daniel medvedev as well if he can kind of regroup after this uh grand slam you know very dangerous in terms of uh us open would be the reigning champion so it's just a kind of the mental you know, composure, um, you know, f- from that setback today, I think will be key. Uh, Mike, we leave it there anyway. Uh, I'd like to thank you for the last three episodes. We've gotten an awful lot of great feedback uh, from social media uh, on uh, the coverage. And yeah, I'd love to have you back. Uh, talk about any more pressing tennis uh, events or news stories uh, as the year goes on. Yeah, thanks, Mark. We, we'll do that, hopefully. And uh, the French Open is in May, so plenty of tennis between that and um, and the French Open is in lots of big tournaments. But yeah, the French Open is the next Grand Slam in May, so we can um, we'll see who's been who's been winning or who's been improving in, in the next few months. Exactly, Mike. Sounds like a plan. So uh, thanks for all your time. Anyway, last uh, last two weeks, anyway, much appreciated. Okay, Mark. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, why not subscribe to the Hawkeye Psychic podcast on either Amazon, Spotify, YouTube or Twitter platforms. You can also follow me at Hawkeye Psychic on Facebook and Twitter for the latest sporting opinions, articles and reports.